0: You're listening to Friendly Connections, the podcast of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. I'm Chase Maxwell. Today we're bringing you a talk from our Untold Stories Labor History series, now in its 18th season. In celebration of Labor History Month each May, the Untold Stories series presents programs and talks on both local and national labor history topics. Past programs in the series have featured historian Robin D.G. Kelly, singer Larry Long, author Sherry Register, and walking tours by local historian David Reilly. The series received the 2003 John Sessions Memorial Award from the American Library Association for service to the labor community. This episode features Hunter College professor Donna Haverty Stack discussing her book, Trotskyists on Trial, Free Speech and Political Persecution Since the Age of FDR. I'll now turn it over to David Reilly, who in addition to being a historian is a longtime member of the Untold Stories Planning Committee. Really will provide the full introduction to Donna's talk. And now, David Reilly.
1: Welcome everybody. It's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished visitor tonight. She's traveled 1,200 miles to be with us and I came two city blocks, so I will be brief. Donna Haverty-Stack is Interim Chair of the History Department at Hunter College, part of City University of New York, and she teaches courses in U.S. Cultural, Labor, and Urban History. Professor Haverty-Stack also coordinates the Labor and Working Class History Seminar at Roosevelt House in New York, which is affiliated with the college. She's the author of American's Forgotten Holiday, May Day* and nationalism 1867 to 1960 published in 2009 and co-editor with daniel walkowitz of rethinking u.s labor history uh, essays on the working class experience 1756 to 2009 what she brings to us here tonight and through her book it's not quite an untold story but it's one which has been largely forgotten and pushed into an obscure corner of labor and legal history through her book and its deep research, she revisits the repressive and anti-democratic 1941 trial of 29 socialists and leaders of the Minneapolis Teamsters Union and the conviction and imprisonment of 18. Donna has utilized newly available government documents, especially FBI files obtained through the landmark 1976 lawsuit by the Socialist Workers Party. And she looks at the experience through new eyes and the perspective of 75 years of history of fights over labor and civil rights since the uh, Smith Act trial in Minneapolis occurred. Let's give a warm Minnesota welcome to Donna Haverty stack
2: Thank you, thank you, Dave. And I'd like to thank Dave and Elaine Hopkins and the friends of the St. Paul Public Library for inviting me tonight. And I thank all of you for turning out to hear me. I'd like to begin the discussion of my book tonight by taking us back in time. Imagine it is August 1942, and we're attending a Socialist Workers Party meeting in Seattle. A script for a radio play entitled Enemies Within is being circulated among the members. Funds are being raised to support the defense of 18 Trotskyists, many of whom were also members of the Minneapolis Teamsters Local 544, who had been convicted under the Smith Act less than a year earlier in December of 1941. Perhaps a reading of the play also took place at the meeting in Seattle. Let's enjoy the performance. First, we hear the voice of a narrator named Anne, whom we quickly identify as the authoritative voice of an anxious American citizen. She reminds us that Today, as never before, our country is in danger as it fights fascism around the globe. She implores us to not forget the enemies within and to remember how France fell, remember the fifth column. Reassuring us of the FBI's stellar work in uncovering such dangerous forces, uncovering the undercover agents of foreignisms which would overthrow our government by force and violence, Anne introduces a special guest into the studio, Henry Schwinnout, the special assistant to the US Attorney General who assisted in the prosecution of the 18 Trotskyists. We then hear the character of Schwinnout explain the background to the Minneapolis case from the government's perspective. As an example of a real fifth column threat, we hear harp music as the play moves into a satirical imaginary cutaway, featuring an exchange between Vincent Dunn and Roy Weineke. In Schwinnout's recounting, Dunn is found sitting in a darkened basement surrounded by subversive literature, waiting to pull Weineke into an evil plot by letting him in on the Trotskyists' real purpose. Now remember my exact words, Dunn says to the man who will become one of the government's key witnesses. They may be useful to you someday. We have got to overthrow the government by force and violence. (laughs) That will be all for today, Wanky. With Wanky's departure from the imaginary scene, the character of James Bartlett enters Dunn's darkened chambers. Cast as an illiterate gun-toting buffoon, Bartlett asks Dunn, you ain't going to tell me more stuff about overthrowing the government by force and violence again, boss, are you? His offer to use his sidearm in the alleged planned uprising is rebuffed by Dunn, however, who explains what the real ammunition for revolution will be. Literature, stinker, literature. This is the stuff that will really do the job. And so we hear the alleged origins of the nefarious plot explained by the character of Schwenaut's dramatically imagined narrative. Thus, in the dark of night, in the nooks and crannies of Minneapolis, Schwinnout explains to Anne, in the union meetings, in the hotel halls, the sinister conspiracy was hatched. Next, we hear Anne, the narrator, explain that we will now hear Schwinnout in conversation with the journalist I.F. Stone. We hear Schwinnout explain the evidence that the government had of the Trotskyists' alleged ability to overthrow the government by force, Local 544's Union Defense Guard, and its mock drill in 1938 which ended up with a trip to a burlesque theater. <laughs> Cue harp music again as we join Schwinhout in an imaginary recreation of the scene. There we hear Nick Wagner mustering the men and Bartlett taking the comrades' roll call. Anderson off, here. Bowleski, here. O'Connoreski here. Vincent Donovich, here. Grant Donovich, here. <laughs> Anne intervenes to explain to the, leader, to, to the listeners, Thus they stood assembled, 100 evil-looking men armed with rubber truncheons, armbands, and that insidious propaganda tract, the three unexpurgated volumes of Marx's capital. Men ready for anything, without conscience, without morals. We then hear, as Wagner leads the men into the gaiety theater, following men quietly now, he says, the sound of honky-tonk music coming from the inside of the theater. The enemy is Within, which also includes a lengthy spoof of the trial itself, ends with a final dramatization of interviews with the average patriotic American citizen to see what he or she thinks about the Minneapolis case. A Mr. JP Morganpus, a broker, <laughs> opines, America will not tolerate people like that. If they don't like this country, let them go back to where they came from. As the voice of right-wing sentiment, Morganpus states, all labor organizers are dangerous radicals. Shooting is too good for them. Indeed, when a teamster tries to speak next and bring praise to the idea of the Union Defense Guard, is cut off by Anne who shrieks, how did this guy get in here? And quickly the microphone is handed over to Daniel Tobin, the character of course, president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, who summarizes the position of those who had come to support the Smith Act prosecution. While our country is in a dangerous position, these disturbers who believe in the politics of foreign radical governments must in some way be prevented from pursuing their dangerous course. Anne ends the program by reinforcing Tobin's sentiments. And so we see that Americans, unanimous in their condemnation of those who would overthrow the government by force and violence, stand together in demanding the conviction of these men. Pulling back from this commentary, however, is an anonymous announcer whose satirical expression of gratitude to the program's fictional sponsor, Jim Crow Blackout Paper, voices the final critique of the entire affair, leading up to and including the trial from the point of view of the Trotskyist creators of the Enemies Within. Throughout the history of our great nation, Jim Crow has stood for darkness, and now for complete darkness, for total blackout, it's more than ever Jim Crow. The Enemies Within was thus a satire of the fifth column fear that had fueled the passage of the Smith Act and a farcical recreation of the events that led to the prosecution of the Trotskyists. Through its dark humor, it voiced a perspective on the case held by many Trotskyists, that the prosecution was an absurd witch hunt aided by ignorant dupes of Tobin and witnesses coached by the FBI that ultimately blacked out the civil rights of the defendants and threatened the civil liberties of all Americans. But the play also reveals the creative side of some Trotskyists who did their best to keep a sense of humor during an otherwise difficult period in their history. Indeed, those familiar with the specifics of the case would have found these details and the portrayals of the individuals involved deliciously funny. Even during some of their darkest hours, here as they pursued an appeal of the conviction of the 18 under the Smith Act, the Trotskyists managed to find a way to laugh and to keep on fighting. Given what they had just experienced in the year before this play was circulated at this branch meeting in Seattle, and given what they would continue to face in the coming years and decades as targets of the nation's growing domestic security state, their resilience and commitment to their cause and to their right to freely advocate it was all the more remarkable. My book, Trotskyists on Trial, Free Speech and Political Persecution Since the Age of FDR, tells the history of their decades-long struggle. Before I walk us through some of the book's specifics at the chapter level, I'd like to first lay out some of the work's overarching goals and themes. Exploring the social, political, and legal history of the first Smith Act case, this book charts the compromise that many Americans were willing to make between free speech and national security during wartime, and probes the implication of that choice for dissent and democracy in mid to late 20th century American society. Until relatively recently, such a comprehensive history of the first Smith Act case has not been possible. To date, there is no other book and only three articles on the subject. Now, access to declassified government documents and recently opened archival sources makes possible a fuller and more historically grounded story that explains the implications of the case for organized labor and civil liberties in wartime and post-war America. Because the origins of the first Smith Act case can be found partly in the actions of a rank and file opposition movement formed in late 1940 against local 544's trotskyist dominated leadership, its history fits in with the story of early labor anti-communism, opposition to communism within the ranks of labor during the 1930s and early 1940s. What sets this case apart, however, are the ties between that local rank-and-file opposition and the FBI, something that has been less thoroughly probed in the historical literature. (laughs) This book provides a case study of the relationship between such early labor anti-communists and the developing security state. It demonstrates how some working-class Americans welcomed federal investigations into their internal union disputes, a disquieting reality not yet fully explored by labor historians. Yet in Minneapolis, men like Thomas Williams, James Bartlett, and their supporters in the opposition group they formed, known as the Committee of 100, worked to oust Vincent Dunn and the other Trotskyist leaders of Local 544 because of their radical politics. The committee cooperated with the FBI's investigation of the SWP, transforming the struggle for control of the union from a local squabble into a federal criminal case. In addition to deepening our understanding of early labor anti-communism, illuminating in particular the role of the FBI, this study of the 1941 Smith Act case engages with the broader issues of how the state balanced the competing claims of civil liberties and national security just before and during World War II. Under Acting Attorney General Francis Biddle, the Roosevelt administration oversaw the prosecution of Trotskyists beginning in July 1941. This action was the first time since 1798 that the United States put defendants on trial for sedition while the nation was not at war. The decision to go ahead with the case illuminates how even self-described civil libertarians participated in the curtailing of free speech. This book thus complements existing works on the civil liberties violations that took place under the Roosevelt administration. The Minneapolis case, however, shows just how far the administration went to prosecute political dissent, even to the point of targeting the labor liberal left. It reveals how strong fear of fifth column activity became on the eve of the war, and how figures like Biddle allowed that fear to trump their defense of free speech rights. The case legitimized both the Smith Act and, as one contemporary observer noted, its punishment of mere political advocacy. First implemented in this way in 1941, the Smith Act remained in full force for the next 16 years. It served as the statutory basis for many of the prosecutions of the second Red Scare, most notably that of the Communist Party leadership in 1949. While it remained unchallenged by the Supreme Court until 1957, that law contributed to the chilling of political dissent during the early Cold War years. The Trotskyists continued to fight for the repeal of the Smith Act and attempted, in the face of employer and union blacklisting and intense FBI surveillance, to revive the SWP as a Revolutionary Workers' Party. My book also examines this struggle, which illuminates the history of both free speech law and radical political activism during the latter half of the 20th century. The central issue that the 1941 Smith Act case speaks to of how Americans have tolerated or suppressed dissent during moments of national crisis is not only important to our understanding of the period around World War II, but also remains a pressing concern in the post-9-11 world. Americans were willing in the past to place limits on First Amendment rights in the context of perceived grave and imminent threats to the nation's security, and they have been willing to do so again now with the Patriot Act as the country finds itself in a state of perpetual war on terror. This study traces some of the implications of this compromise between rights and security that was made in the mid-20th century, offering historical context for some of the consequences of similar bargains struck today. The story of the first Smith Act case is thus a deeply rooted and far-reaching one. I begin the book by examining those roots. Chapter one examines the militant backgrounds of several of the defendants that were expressed during the 1934 Minneapolis Teamster strikes, the 1938 creation of local 544's Union Defense Guard, a group of 600 armed union men organized to defend against attacks by the fascist silver shirts, and the 1939 Works Progress Administration strike. The story of the 1934 strikes is a fairly well-known one, especially since the publication of Brian Palmer's recent book, Revolutionary Teamsters. And so I do not delve too deeply into the specific contours of that moment in my book. Instead, after providing mini-biographies of some of the key figures in this history, including Vincent Dunn, Carl Scoglin, Farrell Dobbs, Harry DeBoer, and James Cannon, and situating their lives in the young and evolving Communist Party left opposition, I trace out the significance of the 34 strikes, both for the gains achieved for workers in breaking with what had been an open shop town and for the significance of the Trotskyist leadership in securing that victory. The ability of those leaders to shut down the city and lead the drivers and their supporters in trades across the city through months of struggle, struggle that was violently opposed by the Citizens Alliance and the police, later put them on the radar of the Justice Department as potential threats to national security because of their alleged ability to shut down trucking throughout the entire Midwest and thus disrupt Roosevelt's war preparedness program. I argue in chapter one that the perception of this association between the Trotskyist revolutionary politics and their placement as leaders in important and influential roles in the Teamsters Union in Minneapolis as a potential threat to national security was reinforced by the anxiety surrounding the 1938 creation of the Union Defense Guard. The existence of the UDG would be interpreted by the FBI and the prosecution in 1941 as the alleged colonel of a proletarian army set on overthrowing the government by force during the crisis of the war. The government asserted the Trotskyists' alleged dangerous influence within the union movement once again in its prosecution of Max Geldman, Edward Palmquist, and dozens of others involved in the 1939 WPA strikes. In that trial, Geldman, Palmquist, and other members of the Federal Workers' Section a group created to organize the unemployed and those working on WPA projects, were convicted of conspiracy in a case that essentially equated criticism of government policy with subversion. In this case, they were criticizing uh, cuts in in, in relief payments. Similar arguments made by the same US Attorney General, Victor Anderson, before the same trial judge, Matthew Joyce, would come back to haunt local 544 and the SWP in the 1941 Smith Act trial. Chapter 1 also explores the other side of the background to the 1941 case, the changing national political landscape of the late 30s and early 40s, when as war broke out and spread across Europe, America became gripped by a growing fear of fifth column subversion and a little red scare that resulted in the passage of the Smith Act. Such anxieties were mocked in the satire The Enemies Within, but they had very real purchase during the summers of 1939 and 1940 when the bill that became the Smith Act was debated in hearings, first in the House, where it was introduced by its sponsor, Virginia Congressman Howard Smith, and then in the Senate. As one senator argued in the summer of 1940, after the blitzkrieg of that spring, a year ago, this provision for fingerprinting and registering immigrants might have been rejected. But we now know that the modern technique of war involves fifth columns. Smith agreed arguing that the government needed to know who any alien within our gate was and something about him, lest he be beholden to a foreign enemy. The proposed law thus included not only the first peacetime sedition statute since 1798, but also provisions to register and fingerprint aliens, as the term was used, and to deport those who espoused radical political views. So the Smith Act was also known as the Alien Registration Act. Its supporters from within the armed forces, various self-described patriotic organizations and veterans groups, including the American Legion, saw such an omnibus law as essential for preserving American democracy. Others, most notably Osmond Frankel of the ACLU, who testified on the Hill against the bill, vehemently disagreed, making the case that it was especially during such dangerous times that civil liberties needed to be preserved. Vito Marcantonio, the only senator to speak out against the bill from the Senate floor, Agreed with Frankel and argued that it seems to me that in a period as trying as is this period, the test of democracy lies in the ability of that democracy to maintain liberties, to preserve those liberties, and to have more freedom rather than less freedom during the period of crisis. He warned that he was fearful that, under the guise of supporting and maintaining our American way of life by this type of legislation, we are taking steps with seven league boots towards the establishing in America in free America, the slave-like institutions of Nazi Germany. And yet the bill passed the majority in both the House and Senate, caught up in the fear of the fifth column in the Little Red Scare uh, as those members uh, sided with Smith and voted yay. President Roosevelt signed the, the, uh, the bill into law on June 29, 1940, seven days after the fall of France, without protest. Indeed, by then, FDR had already begun to expand the power and reach of what was becoming the nation's domestic security state, another theme I trace out in the book. Beginning in 1934, when he ordered J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, to investigate the foreign ties of fascist organizations in the United States, and growing with his order in 1936 to include left-wing groups, too, Roosevelt had already abandoned the policy to ban all domestic political spying that had been established by former Attorney General Harlan Fisk Stone in 1924 after the abuses of the first Red Scare. In 1939, FDR authorized Hoover to coordinate the domestic investigations of any groups that engaged in subversion or sabotage. Hoover eagerly responded not only by launching investigations into groups around the country, including the SWP, but also by creating the secret custodial detention list in 1939 that kept track of those with strong communist or Nazi tendencies and categorized them according to their alleged level of dangerousness with those deemed most threatening identified for detention if America entered the war. Vincent Dunn and Farrell Dobbs were two of many people added to that list. After I lay out this broad and deep background to what will become the 41 trial, I move in chapter two to explore the immediate context for the case in the internal workings of Local 544 in Minneapolis. This chapter analyzes the relationship between the anti-communist rank and file movement within Teamsters Local 544 and the FBI that turned an internal union fight into a criminal case by the summer of 1941. It explores the complexity of such early labor anti-communism within the context of the deepening crisis of the war in Europe and Roosevelt's expanding preparedness program at home. And it reveals the role of the Justice Department and the FBI in selecting local 544 and the SWP as the first targets of the Smith Act because of the alleged threat they posed to national security. I thus look into the background of two of the key figures in the internal union opposition movement, James Bartlett and Tommy Williams, and somewhat controversially try to understand their point of view. Here I tread on rather uncomfortable ground, but ground I feel I need to explore as a labor historian the place where such workers like Bartlett and Williams could constitute a politically, and indeed in some cases, uh, as, as such as Sidney Brennan, a, a socially conservative movement within an otherwise progressive, indeed radical union. These men have been vilified in existing narratives of the case because their actions were in so many ways despicable. They are the men who first kicked up a fuss within the union as they created the Committee of 100 in early 1941, to protest what they believed was the Trotskyist leadership's turning of local 544 into an arm of the SWP. They then reached out to the IBT demanding an investigation of the local on the basis of the Teamsters' recently passed ban on communist uh, union leaders. And ultimately, they cooperated with the FBI, even as the Bureau was simultaneously infiltrating the union, something I have records of showing taking place as early as August of 1940. But rather than write these men off completely as stool pigeons, I try to explain the complexity of their evolving identities and politics in the context of the deepening Little Red Scare, as well as the factors of their personal desires and grudges that drove their campaign for control of the Union. Ultimately, I argue, based on sources I found in the National Archives, that the story of how the first Smith Act trial evolved out of this internal Union struggle was in many ways much, much bigger than the efforts of men like Bartlett, Williams, and Brennan. Indeed, I argue, it was even bigger than the efforts of Daniel Tobin, who in existing narratives of the case has traditionally been blamed for the Department of Justice's decision to indict the 29 Trotskyists in June of 1941 uh, because of what has been termed the political debt theory. That theory holds that because Tobin, as president of the IBT and a close supporter of FDR, got out the Labour vote for Roosevelt, the president paid back that political debt by greenlighting a prosecution of the Trotskyists after receiving a telegram from Tobin on June 11, 1941, in which Tobin made the case for the group's alleged dangerousness and threat to national security. The groups in question were the Trotskyist leaders of what had become local 544 CIO on June 9, 1941, when Dunn and Dobbs led their union out of the IBTAFL AFL after refusing to accept... Tobin's demand to place a receiver over them. That demand had been Tobin's penultimate pushback against the Trotskyists in the Teamsters on behalf of the internal opposition movement led by Bartlett and Brennan, who had easily convinced him of the need to purge the Union. While Tobin's telegram, his final strike against the Trotskyists, certainly gave FDR political cover to investigate the Union local he could now say he was invited in, it was not the sole or determining factor of the decision to prosecute. What I show in chapter two is the slow unfolding of events that led up to June 11th. That included the FBI infiltration of Local 544 as early as August of 1940, the internal FBI reports made in early 1941, which included allegations of sedition and stockpiling of weapons on the part of the Trotskyists, none of which were ever found and internal communications within the Department of Justice that show a decision to seek prosecution under the Smith Act as early as April of 1941, all well before Tobin's telegram. As I argue in the book, the significance of the story thus goes beyond its importance for the Trotskyists in many ways. The origins of the 1941 prosecution thus reveal the extensive nature of such early labor anti-communist networks and shed light on how the FBI and the Justice Department engaged in such early domestic security work. In chapter three, I also demonstrate how this case had implications for larger questions of civil liberties and free speech. In this chapter, I analyze the first half of the lengthy trial, what essentially comprised the government's case, showing how US Attorney Victor Anderson used the Smith Act's provisions to define the SWP as an illegal conspiracy and essentially put socialism on trial. On July 15, 1941, a federal grand jury indicted the 29 James Cannon, Grace Carlson, Jay Cooper, Oscar Coover, Harry DeBoer, Farrell Dobbs, Grant Dunn, Miles Dunn, Vincent Ray Dunn, George Frostig, Albert Goldman, Max Geldman, Walter Hagstrom, Clarence Hamill, Emil Hansen, Carlos Hudson, Carl Kuhn, Felix Morrow, Roy Organ, Edward Palmquist, Kelly Postal, Ray Rainbolt, Alfred Russell, Oscar Schoenfeld, Rose Seiler, Dorothy Schultz, Carl Skolgan, Harold Swanson, and Nick Wagner. The first count of the indictment brought under a Civil War insurrection statute, charged that the defendants had engaged in a conspiracy to overthrow the government by force. The prosecution attempted to make its case for this count by pointing to the actions of the Union Defense Guard, but not a single defendant was found guilty under that charge. The second count was brought under the Smith Act and constituted the much broader sedition charge against alleged seditious speech publications and associations. When the trial opened on October 27th, only 28 defendants were present because, by then, Grant Dunn had committed suicide on October 4. Even before they entered the courtroom then, the Trotskyists had suffered a devastating blow. When the trial began, the prosecution's logic, as articulated by US Attorney Victor Anderson in his opening statement, was that it planned to demonstrate that the accused advocated Marxist ideas that were in themselves inherently unlawful because, according to Anderson, they depended on the advocacy of violent revolution. Thus, the crux of the government's argument was that the party and the Marxist ideas it was founded upon were illegal. It was in this sense that socialism was put on trial. The prosecution deemed the SWP a revolutionary party that would use force to achieve its program, be that through the infiltration of the armed forces or the creation of a special union defense corps, and thus it contended that any of the defendants knowingly connected to it was guilty of conspiring to violate the Smith Act. As I show in this chapter, the government relied heavily on the testimony of men like James Bartlett, who took the stand seven times, and on selected excerpts from SWP publications to define what those allegedly advocated Marxist ideals were. At one point, the prosecution even allowed Bartlett to testify that class warfare was the gist of one-party pamphlet. Once the prosecution rested, the defense immediately filed motions for directed verdicts of not guilty on both counts on the grounds that there was not enough evidence presented at trial. Judge Joyce dismissed those motions, but ended up issuing a directed verdict of not guilty for five of the 28, Hagstrom, Schultz, Seiler, Frossig, and Wagner, arguing that there was not sufficient evidence of knowledge of the party by such defendants. So while these five were set free, the judge did not dismiss the application of the prosecution's conspiracy charge. Joyce also showed no sympathy for the protective application of the clear and present danger test to the other defendants when he famously said, It may seem unreasonable to fear when the size and power of the United States is considered that this comparatively small group of individuals could accomplish successfully the objectives charged. But it is well to remember on this point that Hitler went around in a greasy raincoat in his early days and was belittled for his efforts. The law is there. It binds all, and any two or more who break its provisions are amenable to its penalties. The Trotskyists thus had an uphill battle to fight as they presented their case. I explore the efforts of the defense team led by Albert Goldman in chapter four. That that team saw the trial as an opportunity to fight not just for free speech, but also for trade union democracy and for the legitimacy of the SWP. The defense contended that the SWP was a legitimate political party, and that its members, including those in local 544, had a protected First Amendment right to advocate their beliefs. Denying that they had engaged in overt acts of rebellion or had advocated such illegal behavior, Goldman insisted that the defendants were innocent and intended to use the clear and present danger test to make his case. Their argument, however, drew from a relatively recent interpretation of free speech theory that had been embraced by many civil libertarians in response to the abuses of the first Red Scare, that is, a protective application of the clear and present danger test. When it was first articulated by Holmes and Schenck, it was meant to restrict speech. Uh, And this understanding of a protective application of the clear and present danger test was based on a set of ideas that some Americans were coming to abandon or at least alter in the face of the new wartime crisis, when the perceived uh, gravity of threats many felt should outweigh speech protections. This understanding of the protective application of the clear and present danger test also rested on a legal interpretation that the Supreme Court had not yet invoked. They had not yet used it to restrict federal speech restriction and the Smith Act was a federal law so drawing on such a theory for the defense was a strategy that ultimately proved only partly successful for the Trotskyists but escaping the charges was not their prime concern rather it was remaining true to their revolutionary principles using the courtroom to herald those beliefs and defending their right to hold them I examine their efforts in this chapter by describing the testimony of four key witnesses James Cannon spoke to the nature of the party and its core principles In his famous exchange with Goldman, he corrected the misrepresentations of the party that had been advanced by Bartlett and the other prosecution witnesses. Similarly, Dunn and Dobbs took the stand to clarify for the jury what the SWP's relationship was to Local 544 and to trade unionism in general, refuting the claims made by Bartlett and the others that they had made the union into an arm of the party and planned to organize strikes to spark a revolution in the context of the deepening war crisis. And lastly, Grace Carlson, the only remaining woman defendant, spoke to the legitimacy of the SWP as a political party that ran candidates like her and her sister Dorothy, you can see there in the photograph, for office in an attempt to educate the workers in the necessity of socialism. In his lengthy 10 hours over two days closing statement, Goldman drove home the defense's ultimate position when he stated, we do not ask you to agree with us. We have not asked you to, throughout the trial, We ask you only to permit us a chance to go on and teach our doctrines and our ideas. And a verdict of not guilty will mean not only that you recognize the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, not only that you recognize the evidence, not only that you take into consideration our contention that we do not advocate violence but only predict it, but it will mean in your part that you have struck a blow, a blow for the opportunity to transform the chaotic world in a peaceful way. The greater the democracy, the greater chance for a peaceful transformation. Give us that chance, for you cannot stop our voices by putting us behind bars. The condition demands those voices and the voices will be heard. But as we all know, the jury was not convinced. On December 1st, it came back with the verdict. Five of the defendants, Miles Dunn, Ray Rainbow, Roy Organ, Harold Swanson, and Kelly postal were acquitted of all charges. The Remaining 18 defendants were acquitted on count one, but were found guilty on count two. Perhaps because the Smith Act followed, uh, allowed for up to 10 years in jail and a maximum fine of $10,000, the jury recommended leniency in sentencing. That sentencing took place on December 8, 1941. Think about that for a minute. As Dobbs later remarked of the timing, we thought that judge would put us away so deep they wouldn't find us until some archeologists 300 years from now started looking to see what's under the dirt. For a group still staunchly opposed to the war and now convicted of sedition, entering the courtroom on December 8, 1941 for sentencing was a daunting experience but they faced it as they had faced every challenge along this difficult road, bravely and together. Most of the defendants received 16 months' sentences, six received sentences of one year and a day. As I show in chapter five, the 18 did not begin these sentences immediately for they continued to fight the conviction during a lengthy appeals process from December of 41 to December of 43. With the support of the ACLU, which had positioned itself against the Smith Act since the original hearings on the bill in the summers of 39 and 40, The SWP and its newly formed Civil Rights Defense Committee, the CRDC, led by George Novak, spearheaded this fight for the appeal. Through the issuing and sale of pamphlets detailing the nature of the 18's case and the threat it posed to the civil liberties of all Americans, and through mass meetings and petition drives among unions, these groups worked to raise funds for the defense and to build support for the appeal and for the repeal of the Smith Act. In these same years, as I explore in chapter five, The full implications of the first Smith Act case for the presence of the Duns and other Trotskyists in the Teamsters Union became clear. Weakened financially and distracted by the prosecution and appeals process, they became easy targets for Tobin's campaign to seize back control of the drivers. Through a combined assault of the Smith Act prosecution, the use of heavy-handed tactics by organizers sent into Minneapolis by Tobin to convince the drivers to sign with the AFL, and the state labor conciliators' decision to recognize... Local 544 AFL as the representative body for the drivers in the city that September. That was the group that remained loyal to Tobin, where Bartlett and Brennan remained. Local 544 CIO that moved its headquarters from 257 Plymouth Avenue to 1328 2nd Street North during that split, they lost ground and ultimately had to disband itself by the end of 1942. This disillusion of the Trotsky's presence in the Minneapolis-based Teamsters had real implications for the drivers there who are now only able to elicit limited concessions from employers, and employers took advantage of this split in the Teamsters, initially refusing to bargain, saying, well, we don't know who to bargain with, and then making sweetheart deals with local 544 AFL. This raw deal for workers in the New Deal era serves as an example of what could happen to the more revolutionary visions within the labor movement when the state aimed its legislative power at them. Ultimately, the 18 uh, failed in their appeal at both the Eighth Circuit Court, which upheld the convictions in September of 43, and the Supreme Court, which refused to hear the case in December of 43. The 18 then headed to jail and began their lengthy sentences. In Chapter 6, I explore what life was like for the imprisoned defendants as they served their terms from December of 43 until, for many of them, January of 45. And I follow their struggle to restore their civil rights in the years immediately after their release. In this chapter, I continue my exploration of the broader implications of the case for First Amendment rights, noting that this was a concern that contributed to the ability of the 18 to build an impressive alliance with the ACLU, the NAACP, the March on Washington Movement, and over half a million progressive trade union members. Among the many letters that flooded the White House at the time demanding a pardon of the 18 included one in which its author called out the hypocrisy at the center of the smith Act case that was particularly glaring in the context of World War II. He argued that it is a poor thing indeed when our soldiers are dying on the battlefields in a war for the four freedoms, that those very freedoms should be outlawed here at home. In the context of the emerging Cold War a few years later, Dobbs and Carlson, when they were running for president and vice president in 1948, similarly pointed out this disjuncture between the nation's stated principles of freedom and their continued inability to achieve a presidential pardon. And once again, a reprieve was not to be. Indeed, things went from bad to worse, as I examine in the first half of Chapter 7, where I trace out the negative impact of the Dennis case on the Trotskyist attempts to secure a presidential pardon and to repeal the Smith Act. With the Supreme Court's upholding of the Smith Act and the conviction of the CPSUA leadership in the landmark 1951 Dennis case, the floodgates opened to additional Smith Act prosecutions at the height of the Second Red Scare. In these same years, during the late 40s to mid 1950s, the FBI continued its intense surveillance of the SWP as a whole and of the individual Smith Act defendants. And the Minneapolis Teamsters community, now dominated by local 544 AFL under the trusteeship of none other than Sidney Brennan, who reaped the fruits of his betrayal of the Duns in '41, pursued an intensive blacklisting of anyone who had ties to the Trotskyists, making it almost impossible for them to earn a living. Most of the 18, including Dunn, Cannon, Dobbs, and Geldman remained true to their commitment to Trotskyism throughout their lives, despite the surveillance, harassment, and blacklistings. But others, including Goldman, Carlson, and Palmquist, left the party for different reasons, which I explore in this final chapter. Even after the court's important Yates decision in 1957, when it finally applied the protective use of the clear and present danger test to the Smith Act and rendered it toothless by requiring a stricter standard of evidence with the proof of the advocacy of actions... The political repression of the SWP did not end. In fact, with the defanging of the Smith Act, J. Edgar Hoover sought new ways to continue his surveillance of alleged dangerous political groups, now without statutory cover and without the goal of a federal prosecution in mind. Thus was born COINTELPRO. Its use against the SWP beginning in 1961 essentially just continued the surveillance and disruption that had been aimed at the party since at least 1940. Once again, the Trotskyists were at the center of this important civil liberties story. But this time, there was a happy ending. The 1986 victory of the SWP in its lawsuit against the FBI for its use of excessive and illegal COINTELPRO surveillance of the party from 1961 to 1976. Farrell Dobbs, at the age of 74, had testified when this case went to court in 1981, tracing the FBI's interventions and harassment of him and the party from the origins of the Minneapolis Teamsters faction fight in 1940 through the early 1970s when he retired as national secretary. His testimony contributed to the SWP's case that it had been damaged by the Bureau's actions and that its members' constitutional rights had been violated. This time, he and the party were vindicated in the courtroom. In 1986, Judge Thomas Greiser ruled that the FBI's COINTEL operations against the SWP were, quote, patently unconstitutional and violated the SWP's First Amendment rights of free speech and assembly. Greiser's ruling vindicated the SWP, which had been a target of such violations since 1940. Although the party had rallied to a high of 3,000 members in 1945, invigorated in part by the fight against the Smith Act, the long-term disruptions of the FBI's investigations especially as experienced through the excessive and illegal practices of COINTELPRO, had a negative effect on the SWP's ability to function as a revolutionary workers' party, even after free speech law had been eased and the Smith Act essentially defanged. The 1986 ruling was, in some ways, an acknowledgement of this almost 50-year fight. Dobbs, who died in 1983, did not live to see this vindication, but he most likely would have been pleased and proud of his contribution in securing it. In conclusion, then, I believe that this story of the Trotskyists' struggle to defend their civil liberties over several decades, beginning in 1940, is an important one in and of itself for what it tells us about early labor anti communism, the origins of the national security state, and the resilience and bravery of the Trotskyists themselves. It is also important for the lessons it can teach us today as we live in the post 9 11 era during which the mechanisms of the national security state have been expanded and enhanced in ways that perhaps not even J. Edgar Hoover would have anticipated. As it faces continued terror threats today, America finds itself in a strange twilight zone, something akin to what Francis Biddle described in the months before the US officially entered World War II, when it may be necessary at any time to take steps which would not be considered in ordinary times, he said. America is now enmeshed in a new experience of perpetual war but a war that is no longer fully defined as war and that is conducted on multiple fronts by various means, including the expanded powers and authority granted to the nation's domestic intelligence agencies. It might seem that a modification of the national security provisions that have tended to abuse civil liberties will never come if the threat of another attack always looms. But if the past is a guide, with the persistence of committed individuals and groups like the 18, the CRDC, the ACLU, and the NAACP, in fighting to preserve those rights, and with the wisdom of the courts in upholding them, that rebalancing can take place. By considering both the gravity and immediacy of possible threats to the United States, Americans can be vigilant and effective in preserving the life of the nation while they protect the freedoms that give life to their nation. Thank you.
0: Now we turn to our audience at Rice Street Library in St. Paul on Thursday, May 19th, 2016. To make it easier for you, the listener, I've summarized their excellent questions and will read them. First up, an audience member asked what brought Haverty Stack to this particular topic. What inspired her to write this book?
2: Yeah, yeah, in a very roundabout way, as I was talking to Dave over dinner about this, my first book was the, on the history of the May Day holiday, the, the labor holiday in the United States. That was my doctoral dissertation. And in studying that history, one of the things I noticed about May Day was that there often would be folded into the celebrations and the protests, commemorations, or acknowledgment of different political prisoners, some from the past, or those who were sort of contemporary concerns or cases that groups were getting behind. And I you know, lightly touched upon that in a larger, discussion of the May Day holiday and its, its trajectory and its meaning in the US context. And I thought, when I finished that book, that, oh, that might be my next project. I would like to delve more deeply into this sort of cultural commemoration of political prisoners. So I started looking at, at different cases, and I came across this one. And the more I read about this one, it then quickly became its own book. and and then And it took on a much larger scope and opened me up and brought me into areas that I hadn't really gone into before, the legal history. Uh, you know, I, I, my first book brought me into the background of labor history and radical politics, but this one really brought me radical politics and labor history and free speech theory and things like that, so that it kind of expanded out into that area. And I think, you know, looking back when I started working on this, oh, gosh, it was like as I was wrapping up the Mayday book, which came out in 2009, The more I read about this case and the the more I was getting into the sources and some of the things I quoted today, you just couldn't help but feel the resonance to the post-9-11 era. And I know, you know, we can't deny as historians that we are colored by our present. You know, I don't deny that. I try to be as objective as I can. But I think there was something about that that really, this case that spoke to some of the struggles and concerns that we're dealing with today, you know, on various sides of the debate. You know, looking back at the, debates over the Smith Act alone, it was really almost eerie to hear these voices, Vito Marcantonio and others, you know, on the left, on the right, that you could sort of plug in people in Washington today to kind of replace them. So uh, that just, I think, deepened my interest in it. Like I said, I think it's valuable in and of itself for the moment. I think it tells us so much about the history, but I think it also has echoes for today.
0: What was the local reaction to the trial, particularly reaction from the DFL party?
2: It depends, again, it depends on what newspapers you're looking at, right? So, you know, there were clearly many elements that I could trace out here in Minneapolis and St. Paul who were very sympathetic and supportive of the, the defendants, but, you know, Clearly, the, the more sort of mainstream papers were not as sympathetic and, and saw this as a real threat and felt it was the right thing to do. More akin to what you would see sort of like in the New York Times coverage, you know? And that, I think, came from two things. I think the broader national climate where some people, when they heard of this, latched onto the, the argument the prosecution was making and really convinced themselves that there was a threat here. But I think locally too, clearly there were elements, as I described, that originated the case that had political reasons why they wanted to see these folks prosecuted, but they also had personal reasons and the politics in the union that was driving this too.
0: Did Haverty Stack uncover anything about the relationship between the Communist Party USA and the Socialist Workers' Party? Did the Communist Party attempt to undermine the Socialist Workers' Party in this era?
2: Yes. It's interesting. They were silent at the time of the indictments in June. And the first article that i that comes out in the Daily Workers in August, and they essentially applaud the prosecution because, of course, timing is really crucial. The Trotskyists are indicted in June of 41, and this is right around the time that Germany invades the Soviet Union and the CPSUSA changes from the Yanks are not coming to open the Second Front, right? They changed the position on the war. And so because the Trotskyists remained anti-war consistently, the CPUSA cr- criticized them for being Hitlerites, you know, misinterpreting their position. But they, the CPUSA could sort of position itself with the government because the United States then by December was allied with the Soviet Union and they were in that comfortable position of... They were able to go after and use it to their political advantage, and you see that in, in see that both in not only the Daily Worker articles in the Daily Worker, but I, you see it in correspondence within the SWP and the Civil Rights Defense Committee when they're working to gain support for the appeal of the case in the unions. Unions that had CPUSA influence, they had to be careful of because even there, they were trying to undermine fundraising for the 18, and within the CIO they were, were, even though they were now affiliated with them, they had to be careful of, they didn't want to set up a central committee to raise the funds because they were afraid that the Stalinists would control it and then not do anything with it. So they, they went, they, they really did a lot of groundwork going local to local to local, meeting to meeting to meeting, and like sort of built a ground game with the CRDC to, to get signatures, to get funds, and kind of work around <laughs> The, the CPUSA. Of course, in 1949, then the CPS CPUSA leadership is convicted under the Smith Act. And Dobbs and Dunn attend the trial in New York, and Dobbs is, is there uh, for the press. And they they restrain themselves. They don't say, we told you so, they, but they make the case that we've, we've been telling you this all along, this just proves our point. This law should have been repealed. And they, they kind of take the high road, which is was, you know, an interesting part of the, the story, yeah.
0: Can Haverty Stack speak more to the satirical humor the Trotskyists employ to highlight the often irrational outlook of their political opposition? And can she talk more about Enemies Within, the play she used to introduce her talk?
2: Yes, yeah, I I love I love that when I found that script and I, I, I wanted to put that in the book, but I, the press makes you trim and trim and trim and trim. And then when I was Preparing this talk, he said, like, Oh wait, I have that story. I wanted to use that perfect for a book talk. But you're right, I think the humor, and this is something that I think is kind of missing from the historical literature, particularly labor history and, and the left, that you know, it's sometimes in the desire to, I think understandably and, and correctly, chronicle the struggles and and the heroism of a lot of these folks, they come across as like really serious and dour, you know. And, you know there's moments for that but there's also moments where they're just really funny you know and really human and you to- I totally get that in 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 the sources you know and uh, and I think that's just amazing that like I said that it just shows their resilience too you know the, the pressures that they were under and to to be able to maintain that i think says something about and also the community that they had you know the support for one another i talk about that you know there are in some instances real family ties but also they became like a family, um, particularly the 18. You know, the group of men who were in Sandstone together in particular, Grace was alone in the women's prison in Alderson, but the correspondence was the way that they maintained those ties, maintained those connections through the party and the party work uh, and their lives in and around that, and really supporting each other, raising money for the children, organizing Christmas parties when when these folks were in jail, you know, that real human side of it. I was telling Dave, I didn't even, I didn't realize when I wrote this book, I'm now working on a biography of Grace Carlson and I'm going back through her correspondence that Dorothy, her sister, was actually pregnant when she was on trial. I didn't make that connection. You can imagine the pressures, you know, when you make it real like that.
0: Can Haverty Stack talk more about the Union Defense Guard, particularly its resilience in the face of the accusations leveled against it at trial?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean. The Union Defense Guard, right, this, they, they formed this group. Uh, they, they were and felt and were, I believe, you know, under threat from the fascist silver shirts who came into the city and were th- openly threatening to bust their heads and tear apart the headquarters. And, and so they wanted to defend themselves. What's interesting is I think it does, it, like, it sheds light on the, the existence of these you know, paramilitary groups that existed in America, and I guess they still exist, right? And I tried to contextualize that a little bit. And I remember reaching out to Jim Green, who wrote a book, the book on uh, death in the Haymarket, And we're thinking about, you know, other moments where workers felt they needed to arm themselves to defend themselves. And I think, you know, after I wrote the book and I'm working on this talk, rereading and thinking, yeah, you know, one thing I didn't, one connection I didn't make strongly enough, and I probably should have, is that these people know how serious that is because of the 34 strikes, right? You know, that, that people were killed and the need to defend themselves. When Cannon says, you know, if that's treason, make the most of it. We have a right to defend ourselves at that real level at the ground. It really kind of complicates, I think, the debate on guns too, right? Well, right, I mean, you know, because, you know, you won't, which groups are allowed to have guns and which groups aren't? And, and, yeah. and in, and in yeah. Chicago, right, in Chicago... In the 1880s, you know, well, the, you know, the working, the middle class and the employers, they can have their elite drill units, but when the workers, when the German workers try to create their Landwehrverein, oh no, they're not allowed to have guns, yeah. You know? And so there, there's, in some cases, they pass laws to not allow them to mobilize. In this case, you know, they went after them. It, I think the reason why that first charge didn't stick was because it was so patently obvious to everybody involved that this group was not a real threat. That while it defended the union members and their property in the late 30s, it had quickly devolved. They were like ushering at the holiday party, like they weren't, you know, <laughs> like they, they weren't, you know, out there drilling and plotting. But you're right; it was enough for that to be latched onto, to be pointed to. But that was the that's why that for that, that civil war insurrection statute just didn't fly. The the, the, the allegation that they actually conspired to violently overthrow. But what was easier to prove was the advocacy, because that's so slippery, and a conspiracy to advocate even, even more slippery, right? So, yeah, but it does open a lot of interesting questions.
0: Haverty Stack made heavy use of FBI files for her primary source research for the book. Can she discuss these files? Were there a lot of them? And were they heavily redacted?
2: Yes and yes. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a very large file um, at the National Archives that's for the SWP and when I started working with that I was able to look at from the late 30s up through the mid 40s. They're still declassifying Uh, so I didn't get beyond sort of the core time frame of the case I worked with that in the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, and that's where I saw a lot of the internal correspondence with the Department of Justice where there's conversations that they want to, they're thinking that they see this as a violation of the Smith Act in April of 41. There's also a memo from Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, to Roosevelt's secretary on June 9th kind of laying out and flagging the allegations that came out in an FBI report there were agents in Minneapolis in January, February, March, April, who were working with that committee of 100. That's what gave me the insight into what people suspected, but now you could actually see uh, the reports that were being filed of testimony that they got from everybody in that opposition group. And they didn't even, you know, take it with a grain of salt that like, well, maybe these people have an ax to grind. They just, they, they heard these stuff. They've got, you know, they're stockpiling guns in Hanson's basement and they've got you know, things hidden in the walls of churches. These were some of the allegations that were made. You know, I often joke around, even like, the hidden weapons that were never found and never brought to trial. So, so those are some of the things that came out in those records. And then I did the FOIA requests for the FBI files of the individual defendants. And just the process alone was quite interesting because one of the librarians in the National Archives found, gave me the record numbers, and then when I asked for them... Some of them I got, and many of the records that I got for Vincent Dunn, it's like over 1,000 pages. <laughs> and Dobbs, and Geldman, and Palmquist, they were redacted in places. And when I tried to appeal, there were places where it was clear I wanted to know who the informant was. You know, they're T1 and T2, they would be given a designation. They refused. They were still upholding like privacy rights um, 80 years later. Other files, I was told, after a period of time had been destroyed. Um, and others, they, they claim they have no FBI file on James Cannon. I, and I've been trying and trying and trying. And and then I would get, no, it's not at the archives, it's with the FBI. And the FBI would say, no, it's actually, we sent that to the, to the archives. No, it's not in the criminal division, it's in the civil division. You know, just like trying to keep track of... Um, and some of it could, I think, could legitimately be, it just, these things fell through cracks somewhere. So I worked with whatever I could get. And so, but it was most revealing in terms of What was happening inside the Department of Justice and the FBI and how they were working and infiltrating the union, working with the Committee of 100 and the decisions that were being made higher up to move to indict.
0: What's Haverty-Stack's assessment of the current national climate for organized labor in light of Bernie Sanders' enduring strength and appeal in the Democratic primary? Has the media hampered his ability to break through?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard, you know. I think you still, I guess you still see the difficulty of alternative voices and dissenting voices to break through in the American political system with the way in which the party structures are constructed. And I think this is a big part of his concern with, right now with the superdelegates. But also, I think what you were hinting at was press coverage of things can really shape and mold. And I think that was the case like with certain local newspapers and with the national newspapers and how things are presented that it kind of can really shape events and limit possibilities. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that it's like the, him and Trump, sort of opposites <laughs> of the spectrum, right, is speaking to a moment where we see a lot of discontent with, in the aftermath of the economic recession and the way that was handled. But it's it's fascinating to see, I think, deeper trends in American political culture that have always been there, sort of tracking now in, in extremes. You know, I think it's interesting and exciting to see that there are perhaps more possibilities than there have been uh, more more recently. But... I don't know, my, my reading is I don't know that he's gonna get, I don't know that he'll be able to get the nomination from her, you know, I don't know. I don't know. So I kind of read it as, I don't know, maybe I'm too cynical that I, I can't, maybe I'm reading in, into it thinking, of course this is not gonna work <laughs> because it never works. <laughs> and there's always ways that anyone who tries to dissent is silenced in one way or another, different ways.
0: Was the Smith Act ever repealed?
2: no it's not has not been repealed it's still on the books but the yates decision that i referred to near the end there in 1957 so in the dennis case in 51 the court upholds it in the dunn case in in 43 it refused to hear it so it implicitly allowed it to stand in 51 it explicitly upheld it vincent's d- uh, decision upheld the smith act and made a the argument uh, that when the perceived gravity of a threat was so great that imminence wasn't really necessary the famous you know don't need to wait until the push is uh, underway before you react so that enabled a kind of preemptive suppression of speech by 57 the court shifts Warren is on the court I mean the Cold War is still very much alive but the Second Red Scare was starting to wane McCarthy had been censured and he had passed away. The Korean War was over. Stalin died. You know, it was a little bit, things were starting to shift and the, on the court in particular, and the Warren court, beginning to be more open to protecting speech. And so in the Yates decision, what I said is it defangs the Smith Act in that it has a different standard where the prosecution would have to not just prove advocacy or conspiracy to advocate ideas that incite violence, you have to show that the advocacy led to imminent action. So if that had been the standard for the Trotskyists, they wouldn't have been convicted. The standard that was used for them was very broad. It was advocacy of violence at some time. And this is what Victor Anderson was arguing, the U.S. Attorney General uh, at the time, which is really kind of (laughs) dangerous. So it's interesting, yeah, the Smith Act is still, has never been repealed, but it's, not been used much since Yates, and that's what led to a drop-off of those convictions. And ironically, as I mentioned, then Hoover wants, doesn't have that statutory power and goes, every time it seems like every time there's a protection, he would find a way to keep the surveillance going and just take it even further underground, which is what happens with COINTELPRO.
0: The next question is about J. Edgar Hoover. To Haverty-Stack's knowledge, are there any public figures who had such longevity on the national stage? Or was Hoover a singular figure in history?
2: I can't think of anybody. He's an important important sort of pivotal figure. You know, because the other figures in in the government, when the wartime crisis ends, there's a sense, and this becomes the kind of consensus of a lot of the civil libertarians that, that began coming out of World War I, and there were the abuses of the first word scare, and then there's a rebalancing, and then there's, we don't want to repeat that. So ironically, there's a sense if we, if we centralize it in the FBI, they're the professionals, and they're not going to make the abuses like the US attorneys, right? That was the logic at the time. And then there was a sense, like Biddle, you know, these are, these are this is, we're in this twilight zone, these are, this is a balanced trade-off that we have to make, but that we know when the war ends, we can rebalance, and we'll pull back, and the freedoms will be restored, and there you see that happening in the court cases that I track. You see it happening in Biddle uh, when he finds out about the custodial detention program. He says, No, you need to end this. This isn't useful. This doesn't help us. Hoover says, okay, the custodial detention program is over, and then there's internal memos to the agents. It will now be called the security index, you know? <laughs> and they just keep it going. You know, so it's hard to know. But he very much from his early days as a very young member of the Radical Division of, of the Bureau of Investigation, before it was the FBI, during the first Red Scare, became fixated with what he believed was this real threat of communism. And that really drove him. Beverly Gage could answer this better than me. She's writing a biography of J. Edgar Hoover. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I really can't wait to read that because I think that he's, a, he's an important figure in, in, in this story, as you sensed, yeah, yeah.
0: Finally, what's next for Haverty Stack after this book? Did she discover any stories over the course of her research that might propel her toward a new book?
2: Yeah, it is propelling me into a biography of Grace Carlson and that is taking me into, it's interesting how, so like each project, you've got to go one hand there and one hand you're going into uncharted territory. Clearly it's gonna be in, a lot in the context of this story radical politics, the national security state, things that she was subjected to, but it's now bringing me into areas that I I don't specialize in, but will be immersing myself in questions of, of women and gender studies, you know, things I didn't tease out much in this book. I touch upon the role of women in the party, how during the prison years, many of the other women were really helping to keep things going here in Minneapolis and in New York, so I want to explore that. And for Grace, when she left the party, I'm interested in questions of how do we define class. She's from an Irish and German Catholic working class background. She gets a PhD in psychology in 1933 for a woman. You know, there's lots of things about her that are remarkable. Her rise in the party, her relationship with Vincent Dunn, and others in, uh, her friendships with others in the party, or with her sister and her other female network. Uh, what that meant. And then on the other end, when she leaves the party, uh, and the return to Catholicism, and and how that fits in to the trajectory of her life and what that can illuminate in larger stories about, again, questions of gender when it comes to radical political left, but also the role of religion in working class life, which I think is something that is increasingly getting more attention. Ken and Liz Wolf and others (laughs) Joe McCartan's brother, whose name is now escaping me, who see the importance of taking that seriously and making sense of that. So those are some of the things I'm I'm thinking of, so. Stay tuned, I don't know how many years from now I'll get that book done, I'll come back. (laughs) Oh yeah, thank you so much, thank you.
0: You've been listening to Friendly Connections, the podcast of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It takes just a few moments and is helpful in making this podcast more discoverable for your fellow listeners. We also hope you consider supporting the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library and its mission, Stronger Libraries for Stronger Communities. Learn more at thefriends.org. Follow us on Twitter at Friends and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Friends of S-P-P-L for the latest episodes. Thanks for listening.